June 7th of this past year began like, like most any other day. And it ended like one I've never experienced in 63 years. You see, on that day, one of the most significant mentors in my life went home to be with the Lord. Sitting in my office, I reflected on his, on his life and his death. And I wrote this brief note to my family that day. It's odd in some ways to consider a man I never met as a significant mentor. And yet David Paulison was that. God used Paulison to shape me. And I'm so thankful that my life connected with his. But yeah, the CCEF School of Biblical Counseling. I'm very sad. At the same time, so joyful knowing that he is in the presence of our Lord, the one that he pointed me to so clearly and consistently. Now, you don't get to be my age without experiencing a number of people going home. My parents, several relatives, a number of friends, but what made this day so different is that I had never felt so sad about the death of someone that I'd never met personally. I took several classes from him online. The first one was over 10 years ago. And as I've shared with some friends even recently, I still listen to some of those lectures. And I'll have times when I listen to a lecture and I'll go, that's what that means. After all these years, or times when I'm struggling in a particular situation working with someone, and I'll listen to something and it'll be like, that's it. That's what they need. That's what I was missing. I've read several of his books, and I've read numerous, numerous essays, some of a few times over. For those of you who've taken the How People Change class, and there's quite a few, you also have been impacted by David Pallison. You see, the How People Change class was derived from the class that David Pallison developed, which is called The Dynamics of Biblical Change, which is the first class in the series that you have to take through the, it's called the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, CCEF, in their biblical counseling program. It was from that class that Paul Tripp and uh, Tim Lane wrote the book and then developed the curriculum for how people change, a class that we've taught, or I've taught here four times and we'll teach again either this fall or this winter. And so this is a promo for that. If you've not taken the class, I encourage you, join us. There's some great things there. But maybe the most important thing that David Pallison taught me was this. And he taught it in such a humble, God-honoring way was that at the core of all of our struggles, and by the way, I'm happy to unpack this with anybody one-on-one, -on -one, but at the core of all of our struggles is our tendency 
to rely more on ourselves than it is to rely on God. This morning, I want to look at a scripture that both illustrates this tendency and provides an antidote of sorts. Though, let me be very clear, I don't believe that until we go home to be with the Lord that we will ever get beyond this process of relying on ourselves. As long as sin exists, there will be the ongoing tendency to want to do it my way and not rely on anybody else. And I am so incredibly aware of that reality in my life. So what we're going to do is we'll briefly look at this passage, and then we're going to consider three ways that we might take this issue of relying on ourselves versus others and make it practical based upon the text itself. But before we do that, let me address a question that is probably the most often asked question I get. And this is going to be the exasperated version of that question. It goes something like this. Are you telling me, Larry, that I need to sit back and do nothing and let God just act while I just sit there? Just a little exasperated, right? But not that different from those that aren't. The short answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. We are called to obey. We are called to love God and love others. We are called to act. We're called to use the brains that God has given us. Throughout Scripture, we hear about the significance of wisdom. So we are to act. But we are to recognize that our ability to question, our ability to think, our ability to desire, our ability to decide, no less our ability to breathe, doesn't come from us. It comes as a gift from God. Though each of these is impacted in some way by sin. So we do take action but we acknowledge lots. That's just a modern vernacular way of saying we pray without ceasing. We acknowledge it a lot, that everything we have is from him. So, we'll come back to this. But if you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. While you're turning there, let me just give you a, a brief context. A theme of the book of 2 Corinthians, or a th- one of them, is that Paul is justifying his apostleship to the Corinthian believers. There are some who are claiming that he doesn't have what it takes to really be an apostle. And so, in fact, there are super apostles That's Paul's facetious way of saying there are those who don't seem to have the struggles that he does or that don't or that do demonstrate greater skills than he does. Then what we're going to look at today is also the very end of what's called the fool's speech that actually begins in chapter 11 and concludes where we're going to conclude today, but we're just going to look at the very end of it. 
And then finally, the verses right before what we're going to look at today, verses 1 through 6. These are the verses where we hear this. There was a man who was caught up to the third heaven. And we go, oh, who's that? And we come to find out it was Paul. But he goes on to say that when he was caught up there and he came back, in verse 4 it says, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. This great revelation, but he cannot speak about it. And so then we come to verse 7. Let's just read. Let me read it for you. Verses 7 through 10. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If you come away with nothing else, I hope that you're struck by this. This is so contra. It's just the opposite of what we so usually hear in our culture. Be strong. Don't let people walk on you. Be tough. Stand up for yourself or some version of that. And he concludes, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So let's unpack this together. Starting in verse 7. Paul doesn't, so Paul doesn't get too puffed up too prideful about the revelation. Remember, he's not allowed to utter anything about it. He is given a thorn in the flesh. What is that? A thorn, most commonly, though there can mean other things, but it refers to something that's pointed. In the flesh, it's something that's annoying, painful, difficult, but now, let me just say what it's speculated to be. Some speculate a thorn in the flesh for Paul was a physical problem. Some say it was a matter of problems with his eyes. Some say, no, 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 no. It was a, about relational struggles that he had in dealing with people. That was his thorn in the flesh. Still others say, no, it was a larger picture of ministry struggles and things that he encountered. In chapter 11, verses 23 through 33, Paul lays out this whole list of things that he encountered, of persecutions, of imprisonments. He goes on to talk about times that he's lost at sea, when he is beaten, and he gives his whole list of those. And some contend, that's the thorn in the flesh. 
But let me make this very simple statement. We don't know what it was. We don't know. And so I'm not going to try to get there. But please note this also. We don't know how long he's been dealing with this. Has it been for 14 years? I think that's a fair possibility, but we don't know that for sure. Has it been for a year or five or six, whatever? I would suggest to you, I think it's really good that we don't know. I think it's really good. One author put it this way. He summarized it well. He said, pastorally, however, it may be to our advantage not to know. The very openness of the identification allows wide possibilities of personal application to a broad range of personal suffering, which precise identification might limit. In other words, if it said the thorn was specifically this, this, and this, then we would go, as we are applying that scripture, and say, well, unless I have this, this, and this, I guess it doesn't really apply to me what comes next. His grace is sufficient. Note also about this thorn in verse 7. It says it was given to him. I'm assuming he doesn't mean there it was a gift that someone handed him. It was given to him, and I can only assume that was given by God. Given by God. But then notice this next line. A messenger of Satan to harass me. Now wait a second. If it's true that it was given by God, how can it be that Satan, a, mess, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Does that remind you of anything? Like Job. Pastor Sean was just talking about this last week for those that were here. Remember, Satan was actually given permission by God to act, which he did in horrendous ways with Job. God, though, was the one who was ultimately in control. I believe that was the case here too. And the purpose of that thorn was to keep him from being too elated, puffed up. So what did Paul do about it? It says in verse 8 that three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. For us, it's thousands of years. For Paul, it was maybe 20. He could recall Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26 says this. So leaving them again, he went away, Jesus, and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Father, if possible, that this cup would be taken from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And he prayed that three times. Paul prays three times, pleading with the Lord. Note again, we don't know, did that happen in one time period, one day, one hour? Was that over the course of several years he pleaded with the Lord? 
We don't know. Let me tell you the reason I keep saying that, of what we don't know. In this very brief section of, of verses, there's a whole lot that's not said. The danger for any of us is that we fill in the gap with what we think, but we may not even know. When we look at some narratives, it, we, we literally get this step-by-step -step process of what happened. But here we don't get that. The reason I want you to hear that is it's for the same reason we want to be so aware of ways that we approach reading Scripture. A similar thing can happen. We can, for example, here say, I know what it means. It must mean this. Therefore, it means this, which therefore it means, and we're down a pathway all based upon what we first decided. This happens all the time. I'm interacting with people who say, I knew what I needed, and so I went to the Bible, and I looked in the Bible for what I needed. Someone's anxious, they say, well, so I went to Philippians 4, be anxious about nothing. Or I was struggling with marriage things, so I went to Ephesians 5, and I looked at that. But we're going to come back and talk about in a little bit the danger of our thinking we know what we need. Or more precisely, our believing we know. So Paul pleads three times, and then he gets a response. I would suggest to you, I think this response is from Jesus, and I'll show you why in just a moment. And Jesus says to him, you've correctly identified the problem and what needs to be done, so let me get rid of that thorn for you. Not. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Here's another piece to be aware of something we didn't see before, we're not told about. When was he told that? What was going on for him when he heard it? Was, it? was he praying? Was it during one of those prayers? Was it a vision? Was it a dream? Was it in the midst of just doing life and he heard from Jesus? We don't know. But what's significant is this. Remember, he had this revelation it says, he was caught up into the third heaven and he was told, you may not utter what you heard. But here, Jesus speaks to him and he can communicate that to the Corinthian believers. That's significant. My grace is sufficient for you. But what about the thorn? What about the struggle? Whatever it was. It was not taken away. But Jesus' grace to Paul will be sufficient. It'll be more than enough 
to deal with it. We're going to come back in a bit, and I'm going to ask you, actually, I'll ask you now and let you be thinking about it. How do you do at believing that His grace is sufficient for you? We'll come back to that. One writer summarized the importance of this verse so much better than I could. He said it this way. Christ's reply to Paul's prayer must be seen as the climax in some ways of the entire second letter to the Corinthians. Whatever the stake or thorn was and however great its pain for Paul, he testifies the grace of Christ was sufficient in dealing with it. This was the Lord's reply to Paul's prayer. Sometimes I've found that the absurd is helpful to acknowledge maybe our own thinking, which I would say is absurd at times. But let me give you an example. Let's say we're at, the o- at Ocean Beach and we have a campfire. And I make this statement to you. The ocean has enough water to put out our campfire. Now, hopefully, you look at me and go, Larry, I know now that you are as old as you say you are. You're really losing it. Of course there's enough water in the ocean. My grace is sufficient for you. Do you believe that? Grace here refers to his merciful kindness or his personal favor. This will provide for him the ability, for Paul, the ability to endure the thorn and not just get by, but thrive. Will there still be pain associated with the thorn? I would sure think so. But that pain, that difficulty, does not override the grace of God. And then Jesus completes this thought when he says, For my power is made perfect in weakness. For my power is made perfect in weakness. By the way, if you happen to use the New American Standard Bible, you're going to note that it doesn't say that. Your Bible will say, for power is made perfect in weakness. The ESV, the NIV, the King James, the New King James, several others, insert for my power. And I think that that's, that works in terms of the, that's what's going on here. Point being... that Jesus' power is more than enough. But let me ask you a question. Just look at the words. My power is made perfect in weakness. Let me at least ask this question that I'm hoping is running through some people's mind. Is that saying that Jesus' power is somehow not complete 
or it's not enough without human weakness? Some could go there, I suppose. It's, it's made perfect. In other words, it's not perfect unless there's human weakness. Here's where we have to take the rest of the scripture, and I'm not going to walk through lots, but let's just keep this point in mind. If God is all-powerful, if that's true, that God is all-powerful, then could God need our weakness in order for his power to be made perfect? It can't be true. It can't be true. I would encourage you to consider this, that a way of understanding this is that his power becomes a reality, or his power has its intended effect or fulfillment in the context of weakness. In the context of my being at the very end of my rope, how many times have you been there? And something happens. There was no way it could possibly happen, and it does. God's power is made perfect in weakness. So we have to ask that question, though, what is weakness? Well, we know for sure it's got to be at least a thorn, whatever that is, we don't know for sure, but it's at least that. It's likely his suffering for Christ, that's what I alluded to earlier, the imprisonments, the beatings, the being lost, see all of that, it's likely that at least. Sam Storms, who's a pastor, summarized this when he said, weakness means Embracing your identity as a jar of clay, we'll look at that verse in a second, so that all power may be seen as belonging to God, not you. Weakness does not mean suffering the consequences for your dishonesty or deceit, and I'll just add there are any of your sin, our sin, but enduring affliction and persecution and perplexity in order that the life of Jesus might be manifest in your body. Let me just read this to you. This is not on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure. We can refer to that. We have, this, we have the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying the, in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Jars of clay, that's us. It's interesting that in the very next chapter of the one we're looking at, chapter 13, the very last one in the book, Paul makes this comment, thinking about this issue of power made perfect in weakness. 
he says about Jesus, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. Now notice Paul's response. By the way, don't look at your Bible for a second. It wasn't this. God, this isn't fair. I've been faithful to you, and all I asked is that you remove this thorn. Is that really such a big deal? He didn't say that. Instead, he says this. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Notice it's plural here. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That idea of the power of Christ resting upon him gets at the same thing that John talked about in John chapter 1 when he said, the word of God dwelt among us. It's what in the Old Testament is that idea, we see it in Exodus chapter 40 when the directions are given to build the temporary place of worship for the Lord, right? When God would tabernacle with his people, when there would be the cloud during the day and fire in the cloud at night. It's that same idea here that Paul is getting at it. He says, the power of Christ may rest upon me. Again, please notice it's not so that my power may get me through my troubles. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so now he shifts completely from, God, take this thorn from me, and he says, for the sake of Christ then, I am, look at this word, content. I am content. Now just a few verses earlier, he is pleading with God, take away this thorn. And here he says, I am content. That is what we would call, and those that know me knew it had to be coming, right? Heart change. Heart change. Who is it that changes hearts? God, God alone. He moved from pleading, get rid of this, to contentment. He isn't saying, I'm so happy that I have this thorn. I'm so happy that I have these struggles. But I'm content because Christ abides in me. Christ lives with me. His power rests upon me. What is he content with? Weaknesses. It's got to include at least a thorn, those things that we've mentioned earlier, that I mentioned earlier. 
but includes things like insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. And he sums it all up and he says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Again, remember, weak is not just, I'm no good, I can't do anything. No, weakness is that he is suffering, he is struggling, he is dealing with the challenge of what's going on around him. And he relishes that because then he is strong. I mentioned earlier that we want to consider three ways this text can inform how we rely on God more and ourselves less. Sometimes we see that we're gonna see this in things to do and sometimes in things not to do. Here's the first one based on verses seven and eight. One of the things that I observe so often starting in myself and then in others is this. We do what Paul did. We identify a problem and then we identify the solution. The problem, there's a thorn. The solution, pray to God. Now hear me on this. Note that he did not scream at God. He did not talk about God, but he talked to God. That is awesome. That is great. That's what we want to do. So what's the problem? He identified that he knew what the answer was. He relied on his ability, his know-how, what to do, and so he prayed, prayed to God, give me, God, what I know I need. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Oh, I didn't think about that. That's the case for so many of us. We make the mistake of identifying the problem and the solution and don't even consider, God, what might you desire? I, I know I'm the only one who's ever done this, but this is what's happened to me far too many times. I do something and it doesn't work, and so I change it and I do something else and it doesn't work, and so I try something else and it doesn't work, and I try a finally one more thing that doesn't work, and I say, Maybe I should pray. A very simplistic but common example of how we rely on ourselves more than on God at times. Here's the second way. And here's one where we're going to look at the, the exact words of the text, but I'm going to ask you to think about the use of a word Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. By the way, I apologize. I never told you why it is that I'm convinced that that's Jesus. He says, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then at the end of verse 9, Paul says, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's how I got there on that. A second issue that I see with a lot of people, again, starting with myself, is we make God way too small. 
Back in the 50s, J.B. Phillips wrote a book entitled, Your God is Too Small. In the 90s, Ed Welch wrote a book entitled, when God is, or, I'm sorry, When People Are Big and God is Small. They're talking about this issue of valuing other people more than we do God at times. I think the same thing happens to us, and it's played out, I think, in this verse here. I want to do something that I hope that you don't believe is blasphemous, or at least throw me off the, out of here. I want to suggest that a lot of people read, and I know this because they've said it to me and we've talked about it, that they read the verse, my grace is sufficient for you, they read it something like, by the way, not, they're not usually aware of it at first, but they read it something like this. I'll give you another, another sentence. My car is big enough for all of us. My office will work. My phone has everything I need. My grace is sufficient for you. In other words, we make God way too small. And so I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to, right now, just let the following verses wash over you as we think about who is our God. In, Galatians, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this about Jesus. For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things all together. In Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. At nighttime, if we look up, especially where there's not a light, and there's stars in heaven, the heavens declare the glory of God. This God who is so big is the same God who in Psalm 139 verse 4 says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. This incredible God knows you and me such that he knows the words that we're thinking, the thoughts that we're thinking, excuse me, before we ever say a word. And this same God, Isaiah says about him, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I would suggest to you that Jesus' words should be said something like, and I'm not suggesting that you go around saying this, 
but said something like this. My grace is sufficient for you. That we would think much more about how great God is. And as we think about that, we think about him more and ourselves less. And a third way, we see here Paul doing what I think is absolutely the way thing that is right, what we want to do. He says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. That is not, I will one time, I'll boast, and then I'm moving on. No, that is, I will boast, and I will boast, and I will boast, and I will continue boasting. The way that we rely on God more is that we remember that this is an ongoing act to remember that I will rest in God's strength. Just the other day, I met with someone who said, I believe that God could do anything, comma, but there's no way that our marriage can get any better. It can get fixed, basically. Let me say it to you again. I believe God can do anything, comma, but there's no way that our marital problems can be fixed. And I said, okay, let me make sure I heard you. And so I just repeated it back to him. I said, this is what I heard you say. I believe God can do anything, but there's no way that our marriage can be fixed. He said, yeah, that's it. I believe that this person believed that God could do anything. Most of the time. But not in that situation. I challenged this person, and they weren't especially happy with me, to consider that they really don't believe that at all. And so I told him a funny story. You've probably heard it. It's one of those stories that gets said lots of times about the guy who, however it happens, skip, you've got to let go of some sense of reality here, who runs the wire across Niagara Falls and he's a tightroper and he walks across Niagara Falls and back. By the time he gets back, there's a crowd gathering. He does it again, back. He comes back, there's a huge crowd I forgot, important part. The second time he goes across, he's got a wheelbarrow, and he pushes his wheelbarrow across, pushes the wheelbarrow back. There's lots of people watching, they're like, whoa! So he says, who believes that I can do it again? Everybody's arm shoots up. And he says, who's willing to get in the wheelbarrow? Point being, We can believe by giving some mental assent. We can believe by putting into 
action, what we say is true. Do I believe that God is in control and not me? Is that demonstrated in the little things that I do? Now, let me go back to something I said earlier. Does that mean when you go to the grocery store that before you grab the box of rice checks, you have to go, uh, God, do you want me to get this or not? No, I'm not saying that, please. But I will say to you, I hope that at some point you do say to God, thank you, God, for giving me the opportunity to buy this box of cereal. Thank you that the store exists. Thank you there's people that grew the food. Thank you, God, that you gave me the money to be able to buy this. Thank you that I had a vehicle to be able to get to the store. Thank you that I've got a house to sit in so I can now pour myself a bowl of cereal. Thank you that I can take the next breath, which allows me to be alive so that I can even eat it. Point being, if we say that enough, we don't think every time we take an action, but it is such a part of what we do that we're relying on God more and ourselves less. I want to close by reading to you a, a devotional that was sent to me by Paul Tripp. And the reason I want to read it to you is because I recognize that everything I've just said to you, the three things that I, I, I highlighted, they all involve what we need to do. But we need to have a hope that is so much greater than what we can do. In fact, Romans 15, verse 5, the very beginning of that verse says, may the God of endurance and encouragement, God is the one of endurance, who's, God is the one who endures when we can't, when we don't. So let me read this to you. Feel free if you want to just close your eyes. You're welcome to, and if you don't want to, that's fine too. Let me state it plainly. Your hope is not to be found in your willingness and ability to endure, but in God's unshakable, enduring commitment to never turn from his work of grace. Your hope is that you've been welcomed into communion with one who will endure no matter what, why is this so important to understand? Because your endurance will be as a grace amnesiac. A grace amnesiac. There will be times when you get discouraged and for a while quit doing the good things God calls you to do. There will be moments big and small when you willingly rebel. Perfect endurance demands just that. Perfection and since none of us is there yet, we must look outside ourselves for hope. Your hope of enduring is not to be found in your character or in your strength, but in your Lord's. Because God will be ever faithful. You can bank on the fact that he will give you what you need to be faithful also. Your perseverance rests on him and he defines what endurance looks like. It is the grace of endurance granted to you by the God of endurance that provides you with everything you need to continue to be 
what he calls you to be and do what he calls you to do between this moment and the moment when you cross over to the other side. So when difficulty exposes the weakness of your resolve and the limits of your strength, you do not have to panic because he will endure even in those moments when you don't feel able to do so yourself. Now that's a reason to be hopeful today. My grace is sufficient for you and me. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that who we are does not depend upon us, but upon our relying upon you. Lord, I pray you would move in each of our hearts. Lord, would we see those ways that we do rely on ourselves, and when we see them, Lord, would we confess those to you? And Lord, would we come to know your grace, which washes over us, that cleanses us from all unrighteousness, your forgiveness. We praise you. We thank you for today. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen.